I think every institution has to explore their mission and embrace their mission and to do it in the most inclusive ways possible. As we imagine our Holland specific future that we will be investing in, I think all institutions have to imagine what can they accomplish? What is their brightest future? What do they look like at their best? And that's going to be different. And it can't be being all things for all people. Your mission has to then guide that vision and imagination. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate, interview this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. And welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education, and we speak with higher education's most creative and visionary leaders. I am joined for this episode by Dr. Mary Dana Hinton, who became the 13th president of Hollins University this past August. Prior to assuming her current role, President Hinton served as the president of the College of St. Benedict in Minnesota, where she was named President Emerita upon her departure in recognition of her many significant accomplishments. As an active and respected advocate of the liberal arts and inclusion, her leadership reflects a deep and abiding commitment to educational equity and the education of women. We will include her full bio in the show notes so that you can um, appreciate the full scope of her uh, of her career and her accomplishments. But for now, President Hinton, I am so pleased to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Melissa, thank you for this opportunity to be a part of the Ingenious You community, and I am grateful for the opportunity to talk with you. So we always like to start the conversation by finding out something about our uh, guess and how their professional journey uh, wound up where it did. And in your case, I'm very curious what drew you into higher ed as a career path and what forces most shaped your eventual journey to the presidency? Well, thank you for that question, Melissa. And I have to say my career path um, is not a linear one. And I actually did not start my career in higher education. Immediately after undergraduate, I was an elementary school teacher. And while I only taught for a year, it was actually a, a really powerful career experience as it was in that space that I 
began to recognize the importance of being called to your career and of being on a mission. I remember watching some of the teachers who, for them, teaching kindergartners was a vocation. It was what they did and they had this vibrancy about them and this patience and this creativity. And as I realized that wasn't my calling, I began to think about what things did matter to me. What was I, you know, what was my mission really? And so I worked in K-12, I then did some work in policy, corporate philanthropy, but the bulk of my um, career before higher ed was in the education nonprofit sector. I uh, was the executive director of a school startup organization and, and loved all of that work. And as I look back, um, I began to try to understand the red thread, what connected these various career experiences and what led me into higher ed. And what I realized was that I was compelled more by the desire to create and support educational equity than by a single title or single industry. I just want young people to be able to get an education. And so when I was introduced to higher education, my first job was half-time faculty, half-time multicultural um, student center director at Misericordia University. And I fell in love with higher ed in that role. I was teaching, so I was a part of a liberal arts community, but I was also able to play a role in supporting educational equity for students. And I just loved it. And it was in that space that I began to understand the incredible role higher ed plays when at its best, it not only provides access, but support for all students to be successful. And I had the privilege of working for a couple of college presidents who chose to nurture my um, career and mentor me. And I began to realize that the sector really needed to hear the voices of women with women making up, you know, fewer than a third of college presidents and women of color um, being even rarer. So only about 5% of college presidents are women of color. And I thought, well, maybe I need to step up and do this hard work so that I could create educational equity, which is again, my ultimate mission. Well, and you gave a powerfully compelling TEDx talk in 2018 entitled Leading from the Margins. Uh, you conclude this talk by saying that your calling is based in the margins and that you dwell by choice in marginal spaces. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, you know, my mission of educational equity, of, of striving to help create that and make it a reality for students really comes out of my own experience, having grown up in poverty, having grown up a young woman of color in the South in the 70s and 80s. Um, and for a long time, I thought the goal was to be in the center, to change myself and my experience and my ways so that I would be accepted in the center. Um, and what I realized is that I actually don't want to be in that center. I want to 
I don't want to be like everyone else. I don't want to lead like everyone else. That I come from a set of experiences that give me and, and those who come from similar experiences a unique skill set. And I realized that I want to embrace that. And until I embraced where I come from and who I am, how could I meaningfully or with authenticity help young people embrace where they're from and who they are so that they could then work um, into having their very best lives. So what that statement really means is um, I embrace all of the experiences that shaped me. I embrace my racial identity. I embrace um, the poverty that I come from as having shaped how I lead today. And I have a level of choice now of which spaces I want to dwell in, which spaces compel my time and attention. And I still cling to those spaces that nurtured me, to those communities that, um, that want an opportunity for education, those communities where parents work hard all day, like my mom did, and who tell their kids education is your, you know, is your only way out, as my mom told me. I want to be in those spaces. I, I no longer want to be in that center that so many leadership development theories tell you you should strive for. I want to get to that center, let the center know that there's a whole world of people out there on the margins, invite them to journey with us, invite people on the margins to journey in the center. But I just don't aspire towards being like everyone else. You've also described yourself as not uh, built for center stage, and yet uh, you occupy uh, the most uh, center stage role in the campus as president. So I'm, I'm curious how you actually live that out or how you've made peace with the fact that as president, uh, you, you occupy a position that is center stage and yet you don't necessarily view yourself as, um, as built, okay. built for that, uh, that uh, position, if you will. Yeah, you know, Melissa, you'll recall when we were first chatting, I, I kind of chuckled when we were talking about my title. Um, and because I never, I didn't aspire to be a college president, um, the title is lovely. It, it connotes a lot about what I do each day, I guess. But that's not what drew me to this work. The, the mission, the work itself drew me to it. And so I wander about campus and I'm you know, laughing with students or faculty or, or staff and administrative colleagues. Um, and I will sometimes forget that I am the president, right? I, I will say that was a hard part of even putting my hat in the ring for presidencies. Not only do I not see myself, did I not see myself in that role? I'm also an introvert. And so, um, so how do I make that work? Well, I try to view my work as journeying with other individuals who share my commitment to the mission of the institution I'm serving. So what I mean by that is I don't think about my work as being on center stage. I think about my work as I'm a partner to Betsy. I'm a partner to Xi'an. I'm a partner to Carrie. I'm a partner to Sim. I'm a partner to 
um, Zahan. So those are um, colleagues and students. And I try to view my work on that individual relationship. So my goal is to connect with individuals and build relationships. I, I think people would say I'm a relational leader. And it's through those individual relationships and individual connections that I try to serve the institutional goals. So I still don't view myself as someone on center stage. I view myself as connected to a lot of people in this community. We're connected intellectually, but even more, our hearts are connected, our intentions are connected. And because of those connections, I get to help the community achieve its grandest aspirations. So I, I don't, um, I don't view myself as the center stage leader, uh, and, and I hope my community views me as a partner on this journey with them. Mm. What a compelling model and a much needed model <laughs> today in higher ed, but but actually everywhere I think. So. For emerging leaders in particular, do you have any guidance, uh, particularly leaders who want to follow your pathway, um, leaders from the margins who uh, may feel similarly called to step up and to, to do more significant work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't want to deny the challenge of trying to create a pathway. Um, it is hard work, but every leader I know works hard. Every leader I know understands the what I call the content part of leadership. What I would say for those other leaders from the margins is that even though you may not see yourself as represented as you should, as we should see um, ourselves represented, Trust yourself, trust your experience, and own your space. Believe in your mission. You know what your mission is. You should believe in it. You should take it out and look at it and decide what remains relevant and what doesn't. But believe in your mission. Commit yourself to that mission and what matters for you. Um, being from the margins, and, and you could be from the margins for a host of reasons. It could be because um, of your sexual identity, your sexual orientation or gender identity. It could be because of an ability or disability. It could be race. It could be income. It could be any number of things. But whatever it is, it's not something to apologize for, and it's not a deficit. It's a part of who you are. And you have to embrace all of who you are if you're going to be a leader. And so my advice is to spend that time owning and caring for and nurturing who you are. I said to a group of students last night, you know, I was talking about leadership. It was a leadership honor society induction. And I was talking about leadership and leading from the heart and the, and the importance of being both courageous and vulnerable and why that matters. But I also said to the students, and oftentimes I think we talk to ourselves through our speeches, <laughs> but I told them that 
you can't effectively lead if you're not faithful to your own self and your own experiences. That if you try to compartmentalize your vulnerability from your courage, your truth from your work, your public life from your private life, then it's unlikely your leadership will be very successful. That you must know who you are, find comfort in your truth, and be willing to grow and evolve. And I told them, you have to be vulnerable to yourself and your truth and find strength in that space. And that's what I want for emerging leaders, for them to honor and nurture their vulnerability and their courage, to honor and nurture their truth, and to find strength in that. Mm, Wise advice, wise counsel indeed. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. that our need to engage and improve our campuses as it relates to injustice is not a transactional process. It is transformational. I'm curious uh, what, what you mean by that, but, but in particular, what does that mean for leaders today? Uh, and, and what's really required for leaders to be effectively inclusive? in this current, this current era? Yeah, you know, I think for a long time, Melissa, we've thought of our institutions as a place where students come to us and certainly we embrace them. And in four, you know, five, six years, they leave our communities. And if we carried out the transaction appropriately, they leave with a credential and it, it goes well and they've had some transformative experiences. Um, but I don't think that model will continue to be very effective. And what I mean by that is that model was really unidirectional. It was focused on, well, what can we do in our transaction with or transformation of students? 
I think inclusive leadership and inclusive institutions recognize that it's actually a bi-directional process. Our institutions need to change and learn and grow in response to the students we are so fortunate to serve. So as our student bodies become more diverse, our institutions need to transform, not just find new ways to carry out the transaction of education, but how do we allow the very heart of our institutions to be open to and transformed by the many diverse voices of our students. So the question isn't how do we just convey who we are to new groups of students? I think the question is how do we open ourselves to changing as institutions in response to new groups of students? And that has to start at the leadership level. As leaders, we have to each day be willing to be transformed by those we are fortunate to be journeying with. And there's not an algorithm for that. You're not going to program your way into it. That's the hard heart work. That's the vulnerability. That's the interior work we have to do as leaders. If we say we're going to be inclusive, we have to be open to the experiences of everyone on our campuses. And I think it's, it's how do we become inclusive leaders, but also how do we think about being inclusive institutions? And maybe I would kind of boil it down to um, thinking about institutions as learning institutions. And there's a bar and tag article from the 90s that I love that talks about a paradigm shift from teaching institutions to learning institutions. I love this article. It's as relevant today as when it was written over 20, about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I'm sorry. Um, I am spending a lot of time thinking about what it means to be a learning institution so that there's not an assumption that because we're all highly credentialed, we just know what to do. Instead, I think we have to have institutional learning agendas that say, this is what we as faculty, staff, and administrators are going to do to learn together so that we can be transformed by our students, so that we can become more inclusive institutions, so that we can um, really learn about what it means to be on this journey together. Hmm. That requires a certain humility on the part of the leader, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I hope, I mean, the short answer, I guess, is yes. But I think if you're not willing to be a learner, and I would say a public learner, so people know that you're learning, then I'm not sure you should be leading a learning institution. Mm. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what... We all have things we have to learn. And, and my presidential colleagues will tell you, I'm really kind of myopic when it comes to leaders and inclusion. And I'm always saying, um, some colleagues would say ad nauseum, Hinton is always saying, we have to learn as leaders. We do not have the answers and it, all the answers. And if we're not willing to learn about issues of inclusion, why do we think our communities would be would react otherwise? 
how do we model for communities what it means to learn? And yeah, I, I mean, I think it requires some humility if, because, not if, but because the dominant sort of thinking about a leader is that they know everything. Well, that's, that's impossible. Um, so you have to be learning. And I think it's more important for my students to see me learning, to hear me learning, um, than for me to try to pretend that I know it all. Um, and particularly when it comes to issues of inclusion. Well, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I, I think the culture of higher ed in the typical academic organization, as you know, which is so, um, which so prizes expertise and knowledge um, creates uh, an, an, a particular challenge for uh, any leader who uh, has the courage to take the stance that you're advocating and yet, boy, is it needed today more than ever. It is. I mean, I, I think you're right about that. The, the, the narrative of higher education is to disseminate um, knowledge, discover knowledge. And I think that the opportunity that inclusion presents is we get to expand how people think about what they learn. We get to expand the number of voices in the conversation. But if we don't express an explicit openness to those voices, then we won't become inclusive institutions. You know, I say, and I've heard others say, we're at a really interesting inflection point in education because right now, you know, for those who have a smartphone, you have access to all the information that's out there. I can, I just picked up my phone as if you could see that, <laughs> Melissa, but you know, I can go on to Google and I can find out all sorts of information. And as we all know, all sorts of misinformation, but let's go with, I'm going to get solid information. And then I can go to class and learn how to translate that information into knowledge. But I think what a liberal arts education does, I think what inclusive excellence calls us to do is to translate that knowledge into wisdom. And I think you can't get to wisdom if you are unable to see the world through the eyes of others. If you're not familiar with the many different ways of being in the world, with the many different experiences people have, if you've never talked with someone from the margins, you, you can't get to wisdom. If you've never sat with someone who's been in the center, you can't get to wisdom. So inclusion really calls us and gives us the opportunity in higher ed to help students move from just, and again, I'm gonna err on the side of factual knowledge and good information um, to wisdom. And I think that's what inclusion enables us to do. Let me pivot here and ask you about the decision, which was unusual um, in the context of what other institutions were doing to reopen the Hollins campus this past fall. Can you tell us why you thought it was so important to reopen and what the experiences has been like um, and also what you have learned from leading through the pandemic? Yeah, I'm happy to, Melissa. And I actually just um, had a, another piece come out in Academic Impressions talking about this very topic of what I've, what I've learned um, reopening in, 
in the fall and it turns out I learned something that I hadn't expected. So Holland's like every place else put into place all of the safeguards. We had an agreement that we, you know, the culture of care agreement that we put into place that we really relied on our student faculty and staff adhering to. We did all of the same things as other institutions. But what I have learned and what made a difference I believe in our institution by saying to our students, I know you can do this and I know that you want to be together and I know that our community being together matters more than anything else. That was critical. The fact that while we had all of those safeguards and rules and consequences, that's not what made us as successful as we were in the fall. We, we only had ultimately in the fall, we had two residential cases of COVID and then 13 cases among faculty, staff and commuters. So we had a great fall. I'm hopeful we'll have an equally good, good spring. But what made it work was the fact that we owned this decision as a community. We made the decision as a community. We took responsibility for the decision as a community and we held one another accountable as a community. And I think those are the reasons why it was important to reopen. It was important to reopen to make a statement of belief in the power of our community. It was important to reopen to say to our students, we know why you want to be here and need to be here and we hear you. And if you meet us halfway, we can make this work. We needed to reopen so we could say to our faculty, we know you will give 100%. And because we know that, we give you a choice of teaching face-to-face -face or online. And we gave students that same choice for learning. Um, we needed to reopen as a community because the transformational elements of living in community are so valuable and we believe in it so wholeheartedly at Hollands that we knew we would make those sacrifices in order to be together. And those are lessons that are going to serve us well far beyond the days of the pandemic. Um, the fact that we decided as a community to do this, that we were willing to say as a community what we know and what we don't know. And that was really hard in the summer. So you'll recall late July and early August, we there was a spike and it was hitting Virginia really, really hard. And we asked the community, we did a survey, we held town halls. We said, if we fully reopen under one scenario, here's what will happen. Under another scenario, here's what will happen. Under a third scenario, here's what will happen what are your thoughts? What are your feedback? We talked about the cascading consequences of not reopening. We talked about the cascading potential consequences of reopening. We pulled back the veil on what that would mean financially. And we said, we trust you with this information community and we trust you to help us make a good decision. And we made the best decision we could. I have to take responsibility for everything that didn't work and my community gets 100% of the credit for everything that did work. And we had a good community, a good semester. Mm, boy, well, I'm glad to hear that. And kudos to you for, uh, for listening and for going forward. 
with that with that decision. I want to I want to revisit the question about emerging leaders because I know you have taught uh, doctoral students in higher ed uh, at University of Pennsylvania. Um, this was teaching. the first year that I haven't taught in that program in about I'm going to guess maybe eight, nine or ten years, but I'll be teaching again next year. Yeah, boy, well, they're lucky. They're lucky to have you. And you you may know we have a program at Bay Path, a doctoral program in higher ed leadership. And uh, a lot of our students listen to this podcast. And so one of the things they always want me to ask uh, guests, particularly presidents, is whether you have some specific advice about how best to prepare for higher education leadership roles, both now and in the future. And you talked previously about, you gave advice in terms of leading from the margin. Do you have other advice uh, as folks are thinking about um, stepping up into more significant leadership Yes, roles? so I teach the teaching and learning module in the um, doctoral program at Penn and the higher education management program. and. So my section, my module focuses exclusively on the importance and value of teaching and learning. And I would say to any aspiring or emerging leaders, never forget that the core enterprise of your institution is learning, that that's the heart of the institution. It's the heart of the enterprise. And I spend a lot of time in my course talking about what it means to be a learning institution. Because as a leader, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but as a leader, you have to help your institution learn. It's not just teaching that happens in the classroom, but as a leader, you set the standard for what it means to be a learning inst institution. And so I, I don't want students to think, well, if I'm going to be a provost or a president or a dean, I don't have to concern myself with you know, good teaching and learning theory. I don't have to worry about inclusive learning or inclusive pedagogy. I think if you're going to be a leader, you really have to focus on those elements because you're helping an entire institution um, think about and engage in teaching and learning. So I just never want folks to forget about that as central to their work as leaders. Mm. So we've come to the end of our time and we have a signature question that we ask every guest who comes on the Ingenious You podcast. And that question is especially timely right now as we are looking to what we hope is going to be the eventual end of the pandemic. So here's the question. As you look to the future as the leader of a small single gender private institution, university, uh, what's on your radar? What are those top few things that you believe are essential for the future of Holland specifically, but also higher education more generally? Yeah, this is such a good question, Melissa. Um, one, I think for Hollands specifically, it's embracing our mission and our work as a university, which means supporting um, the teaching and learning of our 
college for women at the undergraduate level and our wonderful leadership focused graduate programs in a variety of areas. We are also working as an institution to imagine the brightest possible future for Hollands and then investing in and taking the steps to help us achieve that future. And honestly, I think those two pieces, the mission and imagination, really are critical for higher education in general. I think it's critical for all higher ed institutions to understand and then proclaim what their mission calls them to do and to be. And so for us, it's how do we proclaim our mission at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level? And how do we do so in ways that are inclusive of all students who might find themselves at Hollins and see themselves being successful? I think every institution has to explore their mission and embrace their mission and to do it in the most inclusive ways possible. As we imagine our Holland specific future that we will be investing in, I think all institutions have to imagine what can they accomplish? What is their brightest future? What do they look like at their best? And that's going to be different. And it can't be being all things for all people. Your mission has to then guide that vision and imagination. I think institutions will begin to focus more on more as being learning institutions. And again, I'm not talking about our academic programs. I'm talking about our institutions as learning institutions and that we all have to accelerate that learning. And I think that's particularly important when we think about inclusion, equity, and diversity. We have to get to a point where we recognize inclusion, equity, and diversity are for all of our students, not just underrepresented students, not just first gen or BIPOC student, but inclusion is for every student. And if we're going to really move that forward, we've got a lot of learning that we need to do. And then finally, and I think, I hope most institutions are doing this, we have to really rethink how institutions define and pursue success for students but I also think we have to rethink how institutions define and pursue success for themselves. So those are some of the things that I, I am thinking about and that I imagine other, others in higher ed may be thinking about as well. Thank you so, so very much. This has been such an inspiring and a rich conversation. And I, I appreciate uh, your time um, here but in particular, I'm really grateful for your voice and for your presence in the broader higher ed uh, landscape. We so need uh, your voice and your presence. Melissa, so that's so kind. That thank you very work. much. And thank you for being a leader and helping to spread the word about the value of higher education. I am grateful for you.
I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of Chellup, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash Chellup for information about our professional development opportunities for higher ed professionals, including our blog and our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, be sure to review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share us with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join the community. In next week's episode, we speak with Dr. Michael Sorrell, president of Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. Under Dr. Sorrell's 13-year tenure as president, Paul Quinn has become a national movement for its efforts to remake higher education in order to serve the needs of under-resourced students and communities. Join us to learn more about President Sorrell's unconventional pathway to the presidency and the highly inventive route that he and Paul Quinn College have pursued to design a new kind of university for today's students. Be sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss out on this episode. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.